Grab your Bibles, will you? Turn to Matthew chapter 15. We finish up Matthew 15 today. You might also want to grab a a set of notes that are inserted in your bulletin today if you find that helpful. I was thinking about a sermon that I heard about 35 years ago while I was a student at Appalachian Bible College, maybe 19 years old, sitting in a metal folding chair in our dining room. We would break down the dining room in Pipkin Hall and set it up for chapel three days a week. And pastors and missionaries would come in and speak. And those were impacting times where the Word of God impacted our lives. I don't really remember too many of those sermons, I have to tell you. But I remember one day when um, Bob Alderman, Pastor Bob Alderman, who for many, many years, over 40 years, was the pastor of the Shenandoah Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. He's still living. He's been here to speak a few years ago. A dear and precious brother. Uh, opens the word so effectively. I don't really remember everything about his message, but I remember his introduction. And it went something like this. He was talking about the drain and the difficulty of ministering to people. He was talking about how weary you can become from people. And he was talking about sitting at a railroad crossing and watching an empty coal train coming up out of Newport News and Virginia Beach area where it had offloaded its loads of coal and heading back up through the valley to West Virginia coal mines to be refilled. And he said something like this. He said, I thought to myself, I would like to jump into one of those empty coal cars and I'd like to get way up in the mountains of West Virginia and I'd like to jump out and I'd like to live there where there's no people for the rest of my life. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, some of you teach school. Some of you work at Chick-fil-A. Some of you are bankers or attorneys. You interface with people all the time, and it can just wear you out. I want to tell you today, based upon the model of ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we as Christ followers have no permission to run from people. We we are to give our lives for people. Can I remind you that if ever there is a time for the church to be committed to people, it is right now in our country today and even the influencing tentacles around the world. No empty coal cars for us. We have to stay with the people. But you need to be encouraged. You need to be refreshed because people can wear you out. And in Matthew chapter 15, we find that our Lord, and actually for a couple of chapters, haven't you picked up that our Lord has been trying to get away from people and rest a little bit? His disciples have had that sense about them. And no matter where he goes, the crowds, the masses, the multitudes find him. And there he ministers to them. We're in Matthew chapter 15, and we're at at verse 29 to the end of the chapter. And before I read our text, um, let's just comment on the beginning of verse 29, where it says, And Jesus went on from there. Well, where is from there? Well, let your eyes go up to verse 21. And Jesus went away from there. Well, from there in verse 21 was Galilee. Remember, this is a pivotal point. Halfway through the the chapter of 15 of Matthew's gospel is a pivotal point, turning point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus, where he moves from 
ministering almost exclusively in the Galilean arena to Israel, he moves now and he has a broader ranging ministry from now to the end of his ministry before he ends up going to Jerusalem to go to the cross, to die in our place for our sins, and then to rise again. He's going to minister now to, to many Gentile people groups as well. There's a model there for us as well. So he moves out of Galilee in verse 21 from there into Tyre and Sidon. And that's where he encounters this precious Canaanite woman who comes to him. And, and she wants so much for him to minister to her. And, and he calls her a dog. And then she says, but, but master, but Lord, even the dogs eat crumbs from their master's table. Wasn't that a great response? And our Lord was testing her and he loved her and he ministered and he healed. It was a great story. And now he moves from Tyre and Sidon. And when we begin our text this morning in verse 29, Jesus went on from there. He's moving from Tyre and Sidon and he's going again into an, a deserted area. You notice as I read the scripture passage today, our text, that they're in a wildernessy type deserted area. And we won't take the time to go there. But in Mark chapter 7, around verse 30, there is a parallel passage. And there you would see that Mark records for us that he went to the area of the Decapolis, Deca. 10, Decapolis, the area of 10 cities. And that was also a Gentile area, largely populated by pagan people. When I say pagan, people who are not followers of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the God of our Old Testament, the God of our New Testament. And, and they did not follow the God of Israel. And, and yet... They have heard about Jesus and they are believing in Jesus and they are following him. In fact, the masses are just building. It is incredible. And we've already seen this happen earlier in Israel where the masses follow him. Now in these Gentile regions, the same thing is happening. And you can only imagine that our Lord and the disciples particularly, Lord, we're sick of people. Let's get in a coal car and get out of here. Now let's read our text and, and then we'll dig in. Jesus, verse 29, Matthew 15, went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the God of Israel. They believed. Verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. 
And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? See what was happening? So it's been a busy time of ministry. They're moving, trying to move possibly into this area that was desolate to find a break from people. But it doesn't happen. And the masses actually find him. And I just, I want you to see what's happening here. Now, our, our notes today, if you like to use the notes, that's fine. I hope that's helpful. They're not in any kind of parallel, organized, outlined fashion. It's just a running list of observations that I want to impact my life and I want to impact our church using Christ as a model when it comes to interacting with people. The first thing I want you to see on our list in our observation is that Jesus always had time for needy people. Jesus always had time for needy, even broken people. Let's take a look. I want you to imagine in the theater of your mind what this must have been like. Notice that Matthew makes it clear that this is a great crowd of people. He talks about the fact in verse 30 that great crowds, it's more than, so they came in waves. Great crowds of people coming and finding Jesus and seeking him here in this desolate area somewhere among the ten cities along the Sea of Galilee. He's gone up on this mountain. Now, it's probably not a mountain even like we have here, but it's just like a knoll where he's gotten up high above the area. So he can speak and his voice would carry to many people and he can be seen. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them, notice the list that we read, the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others. And they put them down at his feet. The word in the Greek grammar, the word for put down has has the idea of casting it down. They really wanted to get to Jesus. I mean, you picture this. 4,000 men, it's going to tell us, plus women and children. We're talking about thousands of people. Thousands of people. They're coming in waves, they're seeking Jesus out, and they're bringing all of these broken people, blind and mute and lame and crippled. Now, I thought it was interesting that that Matthew uses two different words in here that we would consider a redundancy. And it says he brought the, the lame, and then it says he brought the crippled. And it's interesting that the word for crippled, it has an inference of of those without appendages. It would include those who had missing parts on their body. So they weren't just broken or shriveled up. There was nothing there. I mean, you picture. So thousands of people. There's our Lord on this high ground. And here comes a daddy carrying his little boy or little girl, maybe an eight or nine-year-old little boy or girl who's never walked. And they've got shriveled up little legs. And he's got to make his way in there. That's a pretty determined daddy, don't you think? And he gets in there and he casts this child at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus heals this one. Don't you think there had to be just a cacophony of joy and shouting and jumping and rejoicing? What is in a nine-year-old child who's never walked, who now has legs, is showing everybody what it's like to have legs. 
but that's the lame and then the blind and they've never seen or or some old guy got kicked with a mule 20 years ago and he's he hasn't been right ever since and he's cross-eyed and he's messed up and Jesus heals him and it's instant and it's complete and it's full and it's final and it's beautiful and and they're just rejoicing and and it's no wonder that it says and the crowd wondered about this and they worshiped and the NAS the NIV said the multitude marveled I guess so I mean, you got some, some child or even a, a, some kind of, a, of limited adult who, who never had an arm grow out of their shoulder. And even that one where the little hand sticks out or there's no legs, there's just no lower body. And, and they've never had an arm and they've never had a leg and they've never had fingers. Or maybe their fingers grew together and they're, they're like some kind of duck person or something. And they come and where there was no legs, now there's legs. And where there's no arm, there's an arm. And where there was never a nose or never a mouth with teeth, just a big old sinkhole, they have teeth and they have lips and they have gums and they have a tongue and they have mouth out of nothing. And can I tell you, that's our Lord Jesus. And you know why we we don't follow Muhammad and we don't follow Buddha and we don't follow some young moon and... We don't follow Joseph Smith because we follow Jesus. And the reason we follow Jesus is because he is the son of God in the flesh and the testimony speaks. And no one can do that but God. God in the flesh. That's who he is. Of course, he sealed it all when he rose from the dead. But what a great testimony. What a great picture And there he is. And I know that we're not our Lord Jesus, but what a model he is for us as broken, hurt, ailing people come to him and they cast him at his feet. I want you to add to this number two. Not only did he care for needy people, but he he always saw people as people. Remember, we're in the area of the Decapolis. These are Gentiles coming to a Jewish rabbi, to a Jewish teacher. These 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 are people that... They don't care for one another. You got people in your world you just don't care for? These are people that didn't grow up like they grew up. These are people that don't have the same traditions that they have. These are people that don't act like they act. These are people that don't really know stuff they're supposed to know. And and you have no indication of anything but the open arms of our Lord Jesus as he welcomes them as people. There is not an ounce of prejudice in our Lord Jesus. You know, I don't think I have to tell you that if ever there is a day when the church needs to be colorblind, needs to be as unprejudiced as our Lord Jesus Christ, if that's a word, it is today. I mean, the schisms and the divides and the nonsense that goes on, it's horrible. It is not representative of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to be a people who just see people. And somebody walks away and you've been dealing with them and you can't even remember what color they were. You can't remember what shape their eyes were. They're people. They're people. And Jesus saw people People that he would die for shortly. People that were children of his heavenly father. He saw people for people. Notice uh, another lesson that we'll not elaborate on too much is the idea, number three, that Jesus in this story moves from the physical to the spiritual. I thought that was interesting to observe. 
He moves from the physical to the spiritual. Now, it's not in the passage. It doesn't really tell us. We know specifically that he healed all of these needy people. We also know, let's read verses 32 again and 33. After they glorified the God of Israel, verse 31. And then Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Isn't that remarkable? Now, he, number three, he, he moved from the physical to the spiritual. Number four is that he cared about their ordinary daily needs, their ordinary daily needs. So think about this. People come and they're broken. And what does he do? He fixes them physically. They get hungry and he's concerned about their food. I don't want them to faint as they go. Now, I don't blame the people. Evidently, what was happening is these waves of crowds are coming, 4,000 men plus women and children. So you have thousands of people here. I guess about halfway through the second day, they ran out of their pretzels and peanut M&Ms. They didn't come prepared for this. But they were there, and, and you can imagine the masses of people as they gathered around and Jesus is healing them, and they're trying to jockey their way in. And I suspect, based upon the fact that they glorified the God of Israel, I take it that in some sense of the Sermon on the Mount that we've studied already, that Jesus is teaching them the truths of his kingdom. He's calling them to repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's talking to them about how to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And this is taking time, and the, and the audience moves in and moves out as people get a chance to get their loved one and their broken one next to our Lord. And then it's the end of the first day, and it's dark. And I guess they just hunker down. It doesn't tell us. They hunker down, cover up for the dew a little bit. They get up in the morning, and they start in again. And for three days, I don't blame them. I'd miss a meal if Jesus would fix my broken child. I'd miss a meal if Jesus would make my eyes see again. And once he did it, I think I'd want to just stay right there. We'd build a shrine. Let's just camp out here. And then the third day, Jesus looks out there and he says, they need something to eat because they're going to leave and... I guess they had to get home and milk the cows or something, but they have to eat or they're going to faint. It reminds you even of our Lord teaching his disciples how to pray. What did he say? Father, give us this day our daily bread. He cares about that. So I think it's interesting here that Jesus, we observe that he deals with the physical and he must have moved to the spiritual. And we end up with broken people who turn into worshipers of the God of Israel and they give glory to God. I think there's a clue there for us. Sometimes people don't care what you have to say until they know you really care about them, right? And so, you know, if somebody doesn't have a pair of pants or a meal to eat, they don't really care about what time Sunday school starts. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? That's how the old saying goes. There's a lesson there, and our Lord just naturally ministered like that, didn't he? Just naturally. And then these ordinary daily human needs that he touches them with. 
Now, I think it's interesting what happens next is very reflective of what we've already seen in chapter 14. Got a crowd of people that have been hanging around. They're getting hungry. There's no food. And Jesus turns to his disciples. Let's read it and says, hey, I have compassion. And that's a repeated saying of our Lord, isn't it? Multiple times in our Lord's ministry, he would look at people and say he had pity or he had compassion for them. Then notice what he says. They have nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The end of verse 32. Now verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we? Where are we to go to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And again, it doesn't really say it in the passage. I have to hear in their voice. They're a little bit like, come on, Lord. Who do you think we are? Don't do this to us again. This is deja vu all over again, isn't it? This is like chapter 14, now it's chapter 15. And, and what is going on here? What is that? Well, first of all, number five is that I think our Lord knew that there was a need for repeated lessons. Are you that kind of a student? You got to have the same lesson over and over again. Uh, 39 times the Lord is teaching me the same thing. I'm really struggling to get it. It doesn't really say that the disciples lacked faith or doubted. And in the text, it, in this story, it is possible that the disciples anticipated that the Lord was going to do what he had done when he fed the 5,000 in chapter 14. And so it is possible they had already surveyed the audience and come up with these seven loaves and a few fish. So they had it ready, but you still can kind of see our Lord says, feed them. And they say... In a statement of acknowledging at least their inability in, hum in their hum humanness to provide, at least what they're saying is, Lord, we cannot solve this problem. Now, are they setting our Lord up to do the miracle or are they like kind of frustrated again? I I'm not sure, but I kind of think there's a little bit of that. And aren't we that way? We've just seen God work and now we're. We're forgetting what he's going to do. What is going on here? What is this about? There's a little bullet point there. And I was just thinking how the Lord is repeating number five, his instruction to his disciples. Why is it that the disciples would have been worried? Why were they frustrated if they were? First of all, I think it's because it's an example of our need to feel in control. Any control freaks out there? Anybody that gets a little bit worried when they can't picture what's going to happen this afternoon and what they're going to have for supper and then what they're going to have in lunches tomorrow and how they're going to do this and how they're going to get there and they really need to have the, they have the need to need to know how to be in control of everything. Now, I'm not that way at all. I'm really laid back and gentle. <laughs> well, we got to feel in control or we do what? We panic. We stress out. We get angry, start throwing stuff. Why? Because I'm not in control of this situation and I must get back in control of it. And I think the disciples, it comes through a little bit, doesn't it? Our Lord looks at the disciples and says, feed them. How do you want me to feed them? Where's the food in this wilderness? I can't feed them. I'm not in control here. And I don't like that feeling. Secondly, I think we see that it is an example of how easily we forget the provision of God in our lives. What was it, three weeks before maybe? We don't know the exact time gap from feeding the 5,000 to the feeding of the 4,000 here. But it wasn't that long. How soon we forget that God has provided. I mean, face it, how many meals have you really missed? 
How many times have you really been kicked out on the street? How, how many times has God really failed in his provision? It's a repeated lesson we have to learn, isn't it? I was thinking about the children of Israel in the Exodus. And they have their back against the, the Red Sea. And they have the desert. And they have Pharaoh's army squishing them in. And they don't know what to do. And there's only one direction they can go. And that's up. And Moses does. And he says, okay, Lord, it's up to you. Because otherwise we're dead. And the sea parts, right? And then if you read, that's about chapter 14 in Exodus. If you get to about chapter 16 or something like that. Like not very far after that, three days later or something, no water in the desert. And what do they do? They grumble. Oh, we're going to die. Why did you take us out of Egypt? And they had just experienced one of the most spectacular deliverances any person has ever experienced. And three days later, they think God is going to drop them. I mean, it's a little bit, I think, the mindset of the disciples here. They had just experienced 12 basketfuls left over. And now they think Jesus is going to let them down somehow. Somehow it's on them to come up with food. And I think that third bullet point is an example of our inclination to doubt. Excuse me. It's an example of our, our inclination to doubt. Do you find that true of yourself? I just, I don't know if God is really going to come through today. I, I doubt that this is going to turn out for good. What's wrong with us? This wonderful Lord Jesus. And we're doubting. Why do you doubt? Remember how often Jesus said that to his disciples? Why do you doubt? Well, I'll tell you why I doubt. Because there's, there's sheets of rain falling right now. The boat is about to tip over. It's full of water. And you're asleep. That's why I'm doubting. Why do you doubt? Remember you got a Mark chapter 4. Why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? That's a good question to ask ourselves. I think it is also finally an example of our need for confident faith. Didn't the disciples need a confident faith? You know, to just sit there. <laughs> Lord says, feed them. No, you feed them. Right? I am confident, Lord, that you have the answer. We already surveyed the crowd. We've got seven loaves and a few fish. Few fish have at it. We are totally confident. We have delivered us in the past. You will deliver us in the future. And we have no doubt you will not let us down this time. Confident faith. That's a, confident faith is something that just brings peace to your life. You know that? I think of my mom like that. She just didn't seem to get her boat rocking. The Lord will provide. How's the Lord going to provide? I don't know if I knew. The Lord will provide. It's like that joke I tell about the two guys that were shipwrecked out in the ocean. And they wash up on this island, and it's this small island, and, and the guy, the one guy, he just kind of gets up, brushes himself off, finds a palm tree, walks over, sits down at the palm tree, puts his hand up by his head, crosses his legs, sits in the shade. The other guy's running around, and he's just like, he's all over. All he can find on the island is dead bones of other people who've washed up on the shore. And he comes back, and he screams at the guy, and he says, we're going to die here, we're going to die, what's wrong with you? And the guy said, Relax. He said, I'm a very wealthy man. I tithe heavily to my church. My pastor will find me. <laughs> That's confident faith. That is confident faith. It just puts you at ease. So I don't have a thing to worry about. What do you mean I only got seven loaves and a few fish? Don't worry. 
My pastor, shepherd Jesus, will take it and fill the baskets. Don't worry about it. Confident faith. Well, let's quickly end. Fitting in well with this as we observe the passage is that what Jesus does exactly what he did before, verse 34. How many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And then having given thanks, he broke them and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd. Jesus, number six, never panics. We panic, but Jesus never panics. Number seven, Jesus satisfies the hungry soul. Physically, he starts with the physical. He moves to the spiritual. Jesus is enough. Have you found him enough? Jesus is enough. He will fill your basket and there will be some left over. Some people like to point at this passage and they like to say that Matthew, um, and they use it as a, a point of skeptic, skepticism as to the veracity or integrity of Scripture. See, those writers are making up stories and they're repeating stories from one another and it's not accurate. And he just told this story. Now he's retelling it and it's kind of twisted up. And that's why I stole from Warren Wearsby, put his little chart in there of comparison. I think this has everything to do with just repeated lessons And the reality of the fact that here's another multitude that wasn't there for one day, like the feeding of the 5,000, they were there for three days. And it is another picture of the endless resource of our Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of his people. There he is. I believe it happened exactly the same way. He never panics. Jesus satisfies the hungry soul. Jesus is enough. Notice what it says in verse 37. And they all ate and were satisfied. No one was left longing. He filled them up both physically and spiritually. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. This is an interesting point. Back in chapter 14 on the feeding of the 5,000, it says they had 12 baskets left over. And the word that is used in the grammar there for baskets is like hand baskets. Think longer burger baskets on the shelf, you know, those waste of money kind of baskets. (laughs) They're so pretty. Kind of glad that phase is over. Hand baskets. This basket here, the word is, the word is think Damascus, I think it was, and the Apostle Paul being lowered over the wall to escape persecution in a basket. It's the same word there, hamper. So it's possible that these baskets left over equaled more than the other baskets left over. It doesn't really matter. He satisfied, he fulfilled, he met their need, and there was leftover. You will never exhaust the resources of our Lord Jesus, right? Jesus never panics. He satisfies. He is enough. And doesn't he in all of this provide an excellent model for us? An excellent model. We do not have permission to jump in the coal car and go isolate and run away. There are many needy people. You know, it occurs to me that some of you, your needy people that you want to jump in the coal car and run for might be your kids. Think of Jesus. Be renewed and refreshed. And I recognize that we can't out of nothing ex nihilo like our Lord Jesus produce. What a testimony of his deity, wasn't it? Do you think think that he needed seven loaves and a few fish for starter on this miracle? 
I think that the seven loaves and the few fish were simply a visual demonstration of the inability of the humans on hand to do the job. And it needed a supernatural work. You got any tasks at hand that are out of your control and that you don't have the answers you need our Lord ex nihilo out of nothing the one who spoke the worlds into existence out of nothing ex nihilo he needed no, he did not need he did not need any kind of atoms to get it started he spoke the atoms into existence that Jesus is our creator he's our savior who went to the cross in our place he is a trustworthy Jesus Will you never be embarrassed of him? Why would you be embarrassed of this Jesus? Why would you ever be ashamed of his gospel? I think that we have to be impressed, don't we, with his limitless power in this story. And we have to be impressed with his love for people. You count on him for his limitless power and you model him in his love for people, will you? And get those empty coal cars out of your mind. And engage and be Jesus' hands and feet today. Will you stand with me, please? Let's bow before the Lord. Maybe before I close in prayer, there's somebody here who's just um, pretty depleted. You're pretty empty, and um, you have needy people sucking the life out of you right now. Would you ask God to refresh you and renew you and use our Lord Jesus as a model to be his hands and his feet and his voice? Maybe there's some of you that are doubting and you need the repeated lesson that he can supply your need and he is enough. And you need that repeated lesson for like the 99th time. Would you ask God to show you that he is enough? Maybe there's someone who needs to come to the cross and you need to fall in love with this wonderful Lord Jesus who demonstrated his deity and his authority and his power and his right to claim to be Jesus Christ. And to be the Savior of the world. Turn your life over to him today. Father, we thank you for your good hand upon us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we want to glorify your name in all things. You take away the selfish thoughts of the coal, coal train cars and isolation and drive us into the population to be your representatives, your light and your salt this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.